Well, good morning, St. Paul's. Um, so we are getting really close to the end of our Kingdom of Heaven is Like series. I think we're, uh, we're going to have today, and then we're going to have next week, and then we'll be all finished up before we shift into Advent season. Um, I hope you guys have, have enjoyed it. It's been fun for me to study the parables because they're like these little puzzles, these little mysteries every time I go to try and figure them out. And I just consider it such a blessing to be able to, to do that throughout my week, to you know get into the Word and read commentaries and try and solve these little puzzles. And I, you know, I can't promise that everything I've said throughout this whole week is dead on for sure, certainly. Like, this is the way that you have to interpret it, but... I promise you all that I have been doing my absolute best here, and um, I hope that it's been a blessing for you guys, and I hope it's been fun as you've been talking in your small groups um, about uh, what these parables mean and wrestling through them. I really pray that the Holy Spirit has been guiding your conversations. And I want to encourage you, um, if you are not attending a small group right now, to find out when they're meeting. You can go to our website and and look, um, because I really believe that small groups are such a valuable way to connect with people, because we only have a little bit of time here on Sunday mornings, and I know we're all busy, but I really think it's a valuable investment of, you know, two hours of your time in in any given week uh, to just spend some time in fellowship, uh, prayer, um, having fun with other people from the church. Um, really, if, you, if you're not plugged into a small group, I definitely encourage you to consider doing that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're getting close to the end. Uh, last week we looked at the parable of the wedding banquet. And this week we're looking at another parable that has uh, some wedding imagery in it. And it's a parable that's known as the parable of the ten virgins. Now, I think it's actually more fitting in our context to call this something like the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Because we hear the word virgin, and we automatically think that this is going to be a parable that has something to do with sexual morality, right? Um, and there's plenty of places in the Bible that talk about sexual morality, uh, but this parable isn't really one of them. So uh, I'm going to be calling this the parable of the ten bridesmaids, and I'm going to referring, be referring to the, to the virgins in the parable as the bridesmaids, just so that we can be focused on um, the role that they're playing, because... In this case, the descriptor of virgin, it's really a way of saying that these characters are young, unmarried women. And as young, unmarried women, they have a particular role to play in the wedding ceremony. And that role and how they handle it is going to be used to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. So let's dive right in. Uh, We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went 
in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the chance to look at your word together. Uh, We thank you for uh, these parables, uh, these mysterious teachings that are loaded with meaning and and with power. And we pray, God, that you would uh, just open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us. Uh, We pray that we would come to your word with a sense of expectation, uh, knowing that you want, uh, you want us to, to uh, know what it is that you are trying to, to teach us and that you want it to transform our lives. And um, so, God, we just ask right now that you would give us wisdom as we work through this, that your Holy Spirit would be present with us. And we thank you for this chance. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's start off by uh, looking at the the big picture of what Jesus is saying here. We're going to get into the details in a little while. But I want us just to recognize the big picture, uh, which is that a wedding is going to happen, and these women, I'm going to call them bridesmaids, even though that's probably not technically the perfect term, but um, they're waiting for the groom to arrive. So the big picture here is people waiting for a groom. And this scene is very fitting because Jesus tells this parable right after a very long section of teaching in Matthew 25 where he's talking about his future return. Long section, all about his future return. And at one point in that section, he says, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus gives this teaching about his future return, and then he tells his disciples that it's going to happen at an unexpected time. And then a little while later, he tells them this parable. So it's very clear, there's no question about it, that the groom in this parable is supposed to represent Jesus. And um, that's something that we saw in the last, uh, the last parable that we looked at, right? The parable of the wedding banquet. Because in that parable, we were told that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to throw a, a wedding party for his son. And uh, so one way of understanding what the kingdom of heaven is like is that it's a wedding celebration of the union between Jesus Christ and his church. Uh, Jesus is like the groom and his church. Us, we, are like the bride. And the culmination of all of history, what everything is working towards, is this perfect, everlasting marriage, essentially between God and us. Um, So the groom represents Jesus. And then the bridesmaids represent both a wise way of waiting for Jesus in this culmination of history, and also a foolish way of waiting for Jesus in the culmination of history. And I don't think we have to know a lot about first century Jewish wedding customs to see that what separates the wise bridesmaids from the foolish ones is this really simple thing. A very, very simple thing, right? The wise ones bring extra oil for their lamps, and the foolish ones don't. Now, we can see that whether we know anything about wedding customs, right? But I'll just give you a little bit of the the picture of what's going on here because this doesn't look anything like what we're used to with weddings, right? Well, in those days, when a couple got married, it was custom for the groom to go to the bride's family's home to gather her and then bring her back to their new shared home. 
And so when he was on his way, it was custom for some of the bride's friends to come out with lamps, and then they would lead him in a ceremonial procession to the bride's home, where then they would all meet and they would have a wedding banquet together. Now, as any of us know who have participated in a wedding or had a hand in preparing a wedding, there is a lot of pressure to get things right, right? Uh, because it's a really special day. Everyone wants it to go perfectly. I remember one of my professors in seminary, my a professor of pastoral ministry, he had been a pastor for 30 years before going into academics. Uh, and he used to say, if you want me to do your funeral, I'll do it. But I won't do your wedding. I've had 30 years of weddings, and I'm done with doing weddings. And, of course, he felt that way because there's just this incredible pressure with weddings to get things right. And you want everybody on both sides of the family to be happy. So it's a really stressful thing. And I would not be surprised at all if weddings in the first century, uh, Jewish weddings in the first century, were similarly stressful. Uh, Maybe a bridesmaid coming out to meet the groom with an unlit lamp would be kind of like the groom at a wedding today asking the best man for the ring and the best man having an empty pocket. You know, it would be like, oh, man, this is so awkward. This is so embarrassing. Um, And and there's a sense in that moment that a, a moment has been lost forever. You know, you only have one chance to get this right. And... That's what's going on here, is that the the bridesmaids have this one chance, this special moment, to come out with their lamps, and some of them aren't prepared for that moment. Um, Now, the wise bridesmaids in this parable, they recognize that they have a job to do, and that they can't risk showing up with an unlit lamp. They know that the moment is a special moment, it's only going to happen once, and so they don't take any chances. They bring the extra oil. But the foolish bridesmaids, they don't do that. And, you know, maybe they think that they're going to have enough oil for the lamp. Maybe they they think they'll be able to get oil from somebody else. Or maybe they're just not thinking at all. Maybe they're not thinking in advance. Whatever the case, they haven't been wise. And I think one way of putting it is they haven't revered this special moment the way that they ought to. And that comes back to bite them. So I remember one time I was like the foolish bridesmaids. Hopefully, well, I'm sure there will probably be times in the future where I will accidentally or <coughs> make mistakes um, and be like the foolish bridesmaids. But here's an example. So a friend of mine was getting married, and I was asked to sing a song at the wedding. And uh, the night before the morning of the wedding, I found the invitation. I kind of glanced at it quickly. And I wrote down the address, and then the next morning I put it into my GPS, and I drove to the address. And I got there, and I I couldn't find anything like a church. And so I finally found somebody, and they said, oh, this is where the reception is happening. So, you know, I cannot tell you how horrible I felt when I realized that, uh, because Well, for one thing, it was going to take a while to get to the site of the wedding, and I wasn't sure if I could make it on time because I hadn't hadn't left super early. And also, on the way there, my gas light had turned on, 
And so I knew that if I was going to try and get there on time, I was also going to have to risk not getting there at all, because there wasn't time to stop for gas. Um, And to make matters worse, it was city driving, too. So things were not looking good. And I, I remember I just had this feeling of shame wash over me, because, you know, I realized that all I needed to do was look closely at the invitation. You know, that was it. So I, I was very close to having an unlit lamp moment. But by God's grace, I don't know how exactly, but I did get there on time. Just enough time to plug in my guitar, grab a program, and know at what point in the ceremony I was supposed to get up there. So, you know, praise God for that. But if I hadn't made it, it would have been totally my fault. I would have nobody to blame but myself because that invitation clearly said where I was supposed to go. I looked at it later and I was like, yeah, how, how could I possibly have, have missed that? But the thing, the thing was, I just wasn't that careful. You know, I didn't prepare. I hadn't given that event the weight it deserved. Um, it deserved more than just a quick look at, at that invitation the night before. And the foolish bridesmaids seemed to have that same problem that I did. Uh, If the foolish bridesmaids had been anticipating that event, if they had given it the weight that it deserved, they would have recognized recognized that they needed to bring that extra oil for their lamps. That would have been a no-brainer. But they weren't careful, they didn't prepare, and unlike me, they didn't catch a lucky break. So what we need to ask ourselves, two, two questions, or, well, two different ways of phrasing the same question, is are we giving Jesus' coming his coming return, the weight that it deserves in our lives. You know, in other words, are we allowing the expectation of Jesus' return to shape how we live? Are we preparing ourselves for that return? Or, like me, going to that wedding, have we just given a quick glance at the invitation and we don't even realize we're headed in the wrong direction? But this raises another question, which is, What does it mean to prepare ourselves for Jesus' return? Um, In this parable, the the analogy for being ready for the return is having oil in a lamp, right? So that raises the question, what is the oil supposed to to represent? What does it mean in our lives today to have oil in our lamps? That's what I'm really curious about. Well, the truth is that if we're just looking at this parable alone, in isolation, um, we don't know absolutely for sure what the oil represents. But I think if we look at the whole of Matthew's Gospel, we can get a pretty good idea. Uh, But first, I want to talk about what it doesn't represent. Um, Now, I am not accusing anyone here of St. Paul's of thinking the way that I'm about to describe Uh, please don't take it that way. I haven't seen any signs of this, but it's true that in the American church, especially during the 20th century, um, what I'm about to describe is, was common, and it has been common, and to a certain extent still is common now. But for some people, being ready for the return of Jesus means trying to figure out when it's going to happen, arguing about when it's going to happen, and even keeping stockpiles of food and weapons so as to be ready for the time of tribulation before it happens. Now, a lot of well-meaning people have thought this way and still think this way. 
but this is definitely not what remembering oil for our lamps looks like. Uh, when it comes to one and two, I don't understand why this one, it seems like we misunderstand this so often, but when it comes to numbers one and two, Jesus is so clear. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's like he's trying so hard to get us not to think about it, because he's saying, I'm the guy who's coming back, and I don't know what is going to happen. You know, and I don't even know how that's possible, because he said, you know, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God, but he does, the Son doesn't know. He's saying, I don't know. So we shouldn't be trying to figure this out. And for anyone who's ever made a strong prediction about when Jesus is coming back, has been wrong. Uh, case in point, <laughs> I was wondering if anyone would have had it, because, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask. Anybody else besides Steve? Uh, really? Okay, all right. 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. It's a guy, by a guy named Edgar Weisenart. Um, a smart man, really. I mean, he was, he was uh, a former NASA engineer when he wrote this book in the late 80s. And he was so confident in his prediction that he said, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Wow. <laughs> and about 3.2 million copies of this were printed. I'm sure it was very awkward in 1989 when they were all <laughs> still in the Christian bookstores. Yes, okay, so, he did, yes, there was an updated version in 1989, (laughs) and when that didn't work out, he had a follow-up in 1993, and in 1994, and fortunately, none of the follow-ups sold as well as the first one. People started to realize that at least Edgar might not know what he's talking about here. Um, So... This sort of speculation, it only does harm, right? It's, it's not what being prepared for the return looks like. And as to number three, um, I just want to emphasize that this is not the sort of mindset that Jesus advocated for at all. Uh, we are not supposed to be driven by fear and an obsession with self-preservation. Um, There's an interesting section in chapter 10 of Matthew where Jesus sends his disciples out to go and to preach and to heal the sick. And when he sends them out, he says, Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. So when Jesus sent out his disciples to go and preach the kingdom, he wanted them to do it without a lot of concern and worry about having all their needs met. He wanted them to go out in the trust that as they, as they went, there would be people along the way who would house them and feed them and take care of them. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to prepare, that it's a sin to have a retirement plan or anything like that. I'm just saying that we, we are not supposed to be obsessively concerned about self-preservation. Uh, we... We are supposed to be the kind of people who trust God to meet our needs. And especially when we're doing kingdom ministry work, right? And so this idea that we we should be uh, stockpiling weapons so that we can fight off the Antichrist, 
is it's just not where God wants our, our mind to be. And it's not what having oil for our lamps looks like. So those are some things that having oil for our lamps doesn't look like. So what does it look like? Well, I don't think we can say with total certainty that oil in the lamp equals this one particular thing. I think looking at Matthew's Gospel as a whole, there's a couple of things uh, that we could put in there. And we could say pretty confidently that this is... This is part of being prepared for the return of Jesus. But I do think there's one thing that rises to the top a little bit, and I'm going to make my case for it right now. I have no doubt that oil in the lamp can represent this, and I think it might be primary. The thing that oil in the lamp represents mercy. Mercy. So, why do I think this? A couple reasons. First, hopefully you remember that a few weeks ago we looked at the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And in that parable, the thing that leads to judgment is the inability of the servant to be merciful. It's the inability of the servant to have compassion on someone and extend forgiveness to that person. Even though the servant himself has actually already been forgiven by the king for 2,739 lifetimes worth of wages. So this inability to practice mercy leads to the servant's condemnation. He's able to be forgiven this incredible amount of debt, right? The, The king, representing God, is willing to forgive so much. But his inability to have compassion and mercy on another fellow servant and extend any measure of the same kind of grace to that servant leads to his condemnation. So that's one reason to see the oil as mercy. A second reason is because of what comes later in this same chapter. Uh, Matthew 25, probably what Matthew 25 is most known for is a section in the last third and we're going to read through it. I'm sure many of us are familiar with it, but I think it's, it's really important to hear these words this morning. Starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... Okay, I want us to notice that phrase. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. So, in the parable we're looking at right now, it's talking in veiled, parabolic terms about the return of Jesus, right? But right here, there's no question about it. This is what Jesus is talking about, is his return. When the Son of Man... When I come in my glory, uh, this is what's going to happen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or needing clothes or sick or in prison, and did, it, did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So it's a, it's a heavy passage. But what I think it clearly teaches is, so there's just no way around this, right? The thing that separates the sheep from the goats, the thing that distinguishes the people who are ready for Jesus' return from the people who are not, the thing that marks those who have extra oil for their lamps and things, those who do not is whether or not they practice mercy towards the least in society. Uh, so at the very least, one critical way of having oil in our lamps when the groom returns is being people of mercy. Uh, and then finally, I just want to put this out there. You can take this for what it's worth. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, but a third reason to see the oil as mercy is that there might actually be a little bit of a play on words going on here because in Greek, the words for oil and mercy are very, very similar. Uh, the, the word for oil is elion, and the word for mercy is elios. So, I, you know, I can't guarantee that, but it's, it's interesting to me. Um, <clears throat> so, if we want to be prepared for Jesus' return, we can forget about worrying about when he's coming back. Uh, and whether or not we have a, enough food and weapons to defend ourselves. Uh, what we need to concern ourselves with is whether or not we are compassionate people. Uh, whether or not we're forgiving people. Whether or not we're the kind of people who would rather help than judge. And, you know, I realize as I'm saying that, that might sound works-oriented. You know, I, especially for those of us who believe, as I do, that ultimately our salvation is a gift from God. It is not something that we have earned. It is something that Jesus has paid for for us through his death on the cross. Um, but, okay, however we come to understand this relationship between faith and works, uh, there's no getting around this fact that if we are not people of compassion and mercy, we're not really ready for Jesus' return. I'm just going to say that. Like, that's, that's what Scripture clearly teaches. If we are not people of compassion and mercy, we're not, we're not ready. Jesus returns and finds us not living as people of mercy. That's going to be like the groom on the wedding day asking for the ring and the best man having an empty pocket. Okay? It's going to be... Awkward, it's going to be a one-time opportunity where the moment is lost. And it'll be a shameful moment. Besides reminding us of the need to be prepared for Jesus' coming, I think that uh, this parable actually has one other really important thing to show us. And we can see that starting in, in verse 6, verses 6 through 9, when it says... At midnight, the cry ran out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. 
No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. So the bridesmaids who don't bring oil for their lamps, they try to get oil from the ones that did. Um, But the ones that did say that they can't give them any. And I don't think that's really because they're being nasty. I think it's because it's just a fact that if they gave them their oil, it's not like that's going to make it so that everybody in the procession has oil for the whole procession. It's just going to mean everyone's going to go out at the same time. Nobody will have enough, right? Um, And so what, what the parable is saying is you cannot get this oil that you need. You cannot get... Uh, the preparation for Jesus' return from somebody else. And I think that's a really uh, important spiritual principle. Um, each of us has an individual personal responsibility to be spiritually prepared for the return of Jesus. And nobody else can do that for us. You know, I can... I can get up here and preach every week about the importance of putting our faith in Jesus and the importance of uh, being people who embody kingdom values, people who um, practice mercy and forgiveness, but I can't force anybody to do those things. Right? You know, we all as individuals, we have choices to make, and nobody else can make those for us. There's a saying I've heard, which is that uh, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Only children. And what that means is your faith isn't something that just gets passed on to you. Um, It's something where you have to make the conscious decision to say, I am going to be a follower of Christ. You know, God is going to be my father. Um, Sometimes we think, well, just because we were born into a family or the generations before us were Christians, that Christianity is just kind of something that we just automatically inherit. But... That's not how it works. The oil doesn't just get passed on. We can be told where to go to get the oil, right, from the previous generation. But we have to actually get it ourselves. And and when we do, when we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we we become children of God. Uh, But there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. And that's, I believe, what this parable is showing us. Uh, just as the foolish bridesmaids couldn't light their lamps with others' oil, we can't be ready for Jesus' return because of somebody else's faith. Um, we can't be ready for Jesus' return because we go to a church where there's merciful and forgiving people. Like We ourselves have to be merciful and forgiving people. I bet you've heard that old phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I think that's very true in a spiritual sense, too. Uh, spiritual leaders can lead us to water. Uh, the Bible can tell us where the water is. But we have to make the choice to drink it. Uh, nobody else can drink it for us. So we're going to have a period of reflection in a moment. And uh, what, I want, what I'd like to encourage us to do during that time is, is one, to reflect on, have I personally prepared myself for the return of Jesus? You know, have I made the decision to say I'm going to put my trust and hope in Christ, um, trusting in his uh, death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins and uh, my redemption? Um, and has, 
doing that led me to be a more compassionate, forgiving person. Because maybe if it hasn't, I need to revisit, like, have I really understood the grace of God? Um, Have I really placed my faith in Jesus? Um, Because we don't want to be shut out of the wedding party, right? That doesn't sound like any fun. Um, So let's think about if we really do have oil in our lamps and who we're trusting in, where we're trusting to get that oil from. Um, And to think about, you know, if we are being the kind of people who are um, feeding and clothing and providing water for those in need. Um, It's so interesting to me the way Jesus says that basically if you're having compassion on the least of these, it's like you're having compassion on me. Uh, He doesn't make a distinction there between himself and those who are in need. And so it's, it's, a, it's an important call for us to think about that in, in relationship to being prepared. So let's spend a little time to reflect on that. And, uh, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these challenging words. And Lord, uh, I know that it's, it's not your will for uh, anybody here to be... Uh, feeling condemnation, uh, but it is your will for us to be, uh, to be challenged to live in light of your return and um, to have hearts that, that are prepared. And so, God, I pray that you would fill us with your oil of, of mercy. Um, I pray that you would help us to be people who um, bring uh, compassion and love uh, to those who are hurting in the world. And Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you know, nobody else uh, can come to faith in Jesus for us. We have to make that decision ourselves. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the, the, the courage to do that and um, to, to embrace uh, the grace and forgiveness uh, that you offer, Lord. I pray for any of us who might be struggling to understand what the gospel is. Uh, that you would give us insight uh, through your Holy Spirit into that, or at least give us the freedom to ask uh, people questions so that we can understand it better. And uh, God, we just ask that you would guide our reflection now. Uh, we, give you, we give you thanks, and um, we uh, ask you to be with us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.